Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, please. Matthew 22, we're gonna look at verses 15 through 46. If you have your Calvary Hanford app open, you can follow along on the app or you can be at, uh, on, online at uh, calvaryhanford.transcripts.com and uh, you can follow along or you cannot follow along. It's a free country. The topic, Jesus answers a series of loaded questions put to him by hypocrites hiding their sinister motives. The title of our message, Frequently Masked Questions. Let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> uh, at least one of you loves me. But anyway, <laughs> let's pray. Father, we, we appreciate your word. Uh, not as much as we should sometimes, but m- more than you know because it means so much to us. I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with the wonder of your love, that we would consider, Lord, uh, the alternative today (laughs) if we're not saved, we would remember where you saved us from if we are saved, that we wouldn't look longingly back to the world, that we wouldn't be pulled by the world, Lord, into uh, uh, apathy and and just backsliding, but that we would uh, run the race with patience, that we would uh, finish well the race that you've put before us here in these last days. Help us to understand this text. Uh, I pray that you would speak to us directly from it. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. We've learned to Google it when we have questions. What are we asking? The top five questions asked on Google in 2013 are, number five, what is gluten? Gluten is a protein found in wheat. Some people are allergic to it, but it became trendy to remove it from your diet even if you're not allergic to it. A lot of you may be on gluten-free diets, and I know you're wanting me to make fun of it, but I'm not going to. I I respect you. I am not on a gluten-free diet, however, so. What is molly? Uh, That's question number four. It's a designer drug. It's a form of ecstasy. Number three, what is DOMA? It's the Defense of Marriage Act. That was the number three search. Number two, what is ricin? Back in April 2013, a a Mississippi man was arrested for allegedly sending letters laced with ricin, a toxic substance extracted from castor beans, to President Obama and Senator, uh, Senator Roger Wicker. The number one search on Google in 2013 I debated on whether I was even gonna do this or not. What is twerking? (laughs) Thanks to Miley Cyrus's performance on the Video Music Awards, everyone found out as a type of suggestive dancing. Now here's another way of breaking down the data. A, A research firm ran hundreds of search questions through Google Trends to determine which words and terms and questions each state in the union was searching for more than any other. The results range from mildly amusing to completely disturbing. For example, Alabama searched for Fox News, God, impeach Obama, Jesus, Jessica Simpson, Obama is the Antichrist, and Satan. This is real. Their analysis, it's a fire and brimstone kind of state, but with a soft spot for pretty blondes. (laughs) Idaho searched for Bigfoot, caramel corn, potato, and unicorns. (laughs) Their analysis, it's a great state for imaginary creatures hungering for carbs. Montana searched for Bill O'Reilly, gun rights, National Rifle Association, and meth. Their analysis, so that's how they use the internet in Montana. And of course, California searched for Alcoholics Anonymous, dandruff cure, food poisoning, Kim Kardashian, 
Meat is Murder, Paris Hilton, Pokemon, Rogaine, and What Does Siri Look Like? Their analysis, somebody needs to go and check on California. (laughs) Now in our text, three different groups opposed to Jesus come and each ask him their number one question. He answers them and then he asks a question of his own. The questions asked of Jesus reveal something about the priorities of those asking, and the question asked by Jesus reveals something about his superiority. I'll therefore organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, what do your questions for Jesus say about your priorities? And number two, what does Jesus' question for you say about his superiority? First of all, let's look at these questions in verses 15 through 40. On Tuesday of Passover week, our Lord's enemies tried to trap him by using a series of loaded questions. They were bent on destroying Jesus, and they hoped to trap him into saying something that would permit them to have him arrested. Something else we should note, something important and prophetic, it was customary for the sacrificial lamb to be examined before the Passover. This is from the book of Exodus. You took the lamb that you were going to sacrifice and you examined it for blemishes for a period of four days. If any blemish whatsoever was found on the lamb, it could not be sacrificed. Jesus was God's final Passover lamb, the one who would take away the sins of the world. He was being examined, as it were, publicly by his enemies. They didn't know it, but of course they could find no fault with him. And so he was God's perfect lamb. Verse 15, then all the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now the Pharisees, you know, were the traditionalists. They were the conservatives. They despised Roman rule. Herodians were Jews who supported Rome and the rule of the Herods. Normally opposed, they joined together to put Jesus on the spot. If Jesus answered no, he would not only antagonize the Herodians, but he would be accused of rebellion against the Roman government. If he said yes, he would seem like a traitor to the common people who were his primary supporters. Verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now the Jews were a sovereign nation, but for the time being, they were subjected to Roman rule. As a subjected people, they were to be good, even model citizens. They were to pay their taxes, pray for those in authority, and obey the laws of Rome that did not violate their conscience toward God. What is sometimes overlooked in Jesus' response is his emphasis on rendering to God the things that are God's. Here's what I mean. It was precisely because they had failed to render honor and obedience to God that he raised up Rome to discipline his people. They created this dual citizenship because of rebellion against God. The solution, therefore, was not to rebel against Rome, but rather to repent and return to God. Rome wasn't the problem. They were their own problem. Now, here's how this applies to us as Christians, at least one way. We are always in a position of dual citizenship. 
We are citizens of heaven and of some earthly country or countries. Whether our earthly country is godly or ungodly, we're to render its authorities our obedience in that God has raised up that government. We are to pay our taxes, pray for those in authority, and obey the laws that do not violate our biblical conscience. We too would do well to remember to render to God the things that are God's. If we are being oppressed, our first response ought to be repentance and return to God rather than rebellion. It's worth looking into, maybe we're in trouble because we have drifted from our relationship with God. Uh, Verse 23, the same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Now, the Sadducees were religious liberals. They were mostly wealthy, and since they were doing well, they loved Roman rule. Theologically, they denied any afterlife. In fact, they denied the supernatural in general, saying there were no such thing as miracles, angels, or demons. And they said in verse 24, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. A little background in order. Uh, They mentioned it here at the beginning. According to the law of Moses, if a husband died childless, it was up to his brother to have children with his widow so that his line would not cease, to which we always say, yuck. Uh, A little deeper background. There's an apocryphal book, the book of Tobit, that describes a woman named Sarah who supposedly lived through this very situation. As the story goes, she had lost seven husbands to the demon of lust called Asmodeus, the worst of the demons who abducted and killed every man she married on their wedding night before the marriage could be consummated. You'd think after three, the fourth guy would figure it out. But anyway, God sent the angel Raphael, supposedly, disguised as a human, to free Sarah from the demon. It's got a bunch of other really fantastic uh, stuff in it. The Sadducees might have been making fun of this well-known book with this story of this woman and her seven husbands, its emphasis on miracles and angels and demons. Since a woman like Sarah could have multiple husbands in life, didn't this prove the silliness of thinking there would be an afterlife? Because after all, who of the seven would be her husband in heaven? Jesus answered in verse 29 and said to them, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. First, they didn't know the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, it would have to be the Hebrew scriptures regarding marriage and angels. When God brought the first woman, Eve, to the first man, Adam, it was because he was incomplete, he needed a companion to help him, and so they could procreate and fill the earth with their offspring. In heaven, we will all be complete and perfect. We will have everyone for companionship. We will have no need of help, and there will be no procreation. In other words, there will be no marriage as it was first established by God. The institution that we know today will be gone or much different. Now, we could add to that something the Sadducees should have known from reading their scriptures, that God considered himself a husband to Israel. 
So there will be marriage in that spiritual sense. As for angels, the Lord spoke of them matter-of-factly as existing. He did not say humans will become angels. We won't. We will be like them. A quick survey of angels in the Hebrew scriptures reveals them as corporeal beings with an eternal existence whose number is fixed in that they do not reproduce. Now, there is that strange episode in Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God somehow impregnate human women to produce an offspring of giants. If those are angels, it's still clear that they do not among themselves reproduce in heaven. The Sadducees were therefore the ones being silly, thinking that heaven is a mere extension of life on earth. No, it is life on a plane we cannot begin to fully fathom. It's like people who think, what are you going to do in heaven, sit on a cloud and play a harp? As if that is, I don't even know where that comes from, by the way, but people just think of heaven as some kind of an extension of the earth, and they have their best earthly memory, which couldn't possibly be playing the harp. But anyway, uh, and, and they think, well, heaven's just going to be a better place. It'll be a place like that. And God says, no, I, I can't even tell you that much about heaven because it's going to be so different. The resurrection isn't a restoration of things as they were, only better. It's as different as an oak is from its acorn. Now, am I saying we won't be married in heaven? I'm not. Jesus is. Again, like God and Israel, Jesus and the church are described as bridegroom and bride. So in that sense, we will be married. Relationships and intimacy in heaven are going to be something spiritual we cannot fathom right now. I would quote 1 Corinthians 2, 9, where it says, what God has planned for people who love him is more than eyes have seen or ears have heard. It has never even entered into our minds. Now, Jesus also said the Sadducees did not know the power of God. He elaborates on that in verse 31. He says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead by the time God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, but he spoke of them as being alive. He said, I am their God, not I was their God. C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another. God has put eternity in our hearts we know innately there is something more that there is something after life. It's either heaven or hell, but we know that there is a destination after this life. Verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the Pharisees had identified 613 commands in God's word. They saw 248 positive laws and 365 negative laws, uh, do's and don'ts. Their careful scrutiny led them into debates about which laws were most important and which could be overlooked. This lawyer was interested in Jesus' position on that debate. It's initially hard to see how this was a loaded question, but perhaps it was intended to sidetrack Jesus or pigeonhole him. 
Depending on his answer, he'd be agreeing with some rabbis, perhaps, and disagreeing with others, and he'd be just another rabbi in the pack sharing his personal opinion. So it was really to take away his authority and, and to get him on their level just arguing about what is the greatest commandment. So Jesus said to him, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 4 and links it up with Leviticus 19. And in doing so, he gives this scribe a whole new way of looking at God's law. Jesus told him to live by relationships, not by rules. If you love God, you'll find yourself keeping his laws. And if you love God, you'll find yourself loving others the way God loves them. And so Jesus doesn't answer him in the way a rabbi would by picking one or one of the laws. He says, I'm going to show you something way above the way you're even thinking. You can't, you can't solve this debate. You don't need to because we need to be living up here in a relational plane with God. And, and he says, I'm not gonna give you one. I'm gonna give you two that dovetail into each other. And it's just mind-blowing that Jesus could in like, I don't know, maybe it takes, what, five seconds to say those words, just kill this debate that had been going on for centuries uh, that people took so seriously. And so again, uh, they were unable to catch him in his words. Now, I said earlier, these questions revealed the priorities of the questioners. The Pharisees who first approached Jesus had as their priority rebellion against Rome, while the Herodians who appeared with them had as their priority submission to Rome. Instead, both of them ought to have had as their priority submission to God. The Sadducees had as their priority the material world, they were successful, wealthy, powerful, and they wanted to shore up their position on earth and not think about a future judgment before God in heaven. The lawyer's priority was a self-righteousness that he thought could be gained by obeying the most important law. And so I think, you know, in their questioning, yes, they were trying to trap Jesus, these were things that they were somewhat passionate about, and it reveals what they thought about the most, what they were into, you might say, and none of it was really very spiritual. One or more of those things might be true of you or I. If so, we need to change our mind and adopt new godly priorities. Now, what would you say is your priority in life? This is a question for today, something that we can mull over Better yet, take a close analytical look at your life. How and where do you spend your time and your talent and your treasure? What does that evidence say your priorities are? I mean, you and I, I know if I asked any Christian, what are your priorities? You would say without thinking, God, uh, family, uh, church, job. Well, some of you job church, but you'd be wrong. Uh, but anyway, but you'd, oh, God's my number one priority. And then after that, my family. And we all know that. That's true. But if people looked at my life, if I gave them my checkbook and showed them what I was doing in all aspects of my life, what would a casual observer say really are my priorities? Would they be able to conclude, well, I can see where Gene has God as his number one priority, or would it be something else? And I just think that's a great thing for us to do because we, as Christians, kind of want to have God as our number one priority. We do. Not that you know, we're uh, hedging on that. We do. If you're a believer, I know that you want God to be number one in your life. 
And so we shouldn't fear an analysis by the Holy Spirit where he says, well, there's a couple of areas here where I think you're uh, you know, maybe a little bit falling short or I don't think anybody would recognize that you're a Christian. And so it's a, it's a good exercise. If, if it isn't Jesus, if he's not your number one priority, clear your search history and start fresh. Uh, start from scratch. Now, number two, what does Jesus' question for you say about his superiority? I mentioned a few studies ago that Jesus loved to ask questions. He asked hundreds of them in the Gospels. He asked one here, and it's a doozy, not just for his oppressors, of course, but for us. While the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. They must have gotten a little excited uh, when Jesus asked this question because this was Messiah 101. This was a softball lobbed up to them. They're gonna hit this out of the park. There was no chance of any Jew getting this wrong. He said to them, verse 43, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son. David himself said that the Messiah would be his Lord, his Adonai, a word which refers to the Messiah, a Hebrew name of God. How could David's God be David's son? He would have to both precede David and proceed from David. And that's hard to do. We understand this to be fulfilled in Jesus because he was God preceding David and then he became a man proceeding from David's line. In fact, only a God-man could fulfill what David said. And no one was able to answer him, I guess, verse 46. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. No more questions asked no more questions answered. I mean, these, this was, these are the top questions. Of, you know, when, when people say they have uh, Bible difficulties they, and they give you their top question, Jesus says, yeah, these, bam, bam, bam. Now let me ask you a question that proves that I'm the Messiah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It's remarkable. No more questions. Now, does that mean we cannot question God? I was thinking about that this week, and that would depend on who you ask in the Bible. If you were to ask Job, can I question God? I think he'd say, better not, not a good idea. In his suffering, Job had lots of questions and complaints for God. God answers him by saying, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer. And then God asked Job a series of amazing questions that show the greatness of his power and his majesty. And finally, Job responds saying, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so Job would say, you wanna be, maybe curb your questioning of God when you're going through things that you don't understand uh, because he has not ceased to be God. In the New Testament, Ananias might encourage you to ask God questions. 
confused as to why God was sending him to pray for the healing of Saul of Tarsus, who was coming to persecute Ananias and the Christians in Damascus, the Lord answered him gently, assuring him that he had big plans for Saul. I want to elevate our thinking beyond questions we have for God. I want us to see the superiority of God so that we don't need to be distracted by asking him a lot of questions, but that we can more fully enjoy his presence. So the answer, can I ask God questions? Absolutely. You can ask God good questions, stupid questions. I mean, you know, there's, you know, it's all over the map. But I think there's a better way of approaching this, and that is to just enjoy the Lord, fellowship with the Lord, and not in such an accusatory, questioning way. A lot of our questions are really asking him to explain himself. The real rubber meets the road questions are all about suffering and affliction and loss and the evil that befalls us. How many of you have seen the film that's popular right now, Christian film, God's Not Dead? Have you seen that? Raise your hand. If you haven't, I might ruin it for you, but that's just the way it is. You had your chance to see it. It's been out for a while. (laughs) It's hard to be contemporary if you're not going to watch these things. But anyway, if you've seen it or when you see it, actually, this won't ruin anything, but you know that a major plot point, probably the, the thing that everything hinges on is this question of suffering. Why does God allow certain specific suffering in people's lives? And I've been telling you this for the last couple of years at least, this I believe is the question on people's minds and hearts, believers and non-believers. If there's a God, why this? And what we're asking though, I mean we have answers for it, we have the answer, But what people mean by that question is, I want a personal explanation of why me right now. I understand there's evil in the world. I understand there's free will. I understand, you know, this. But when it touches my life, I need a personal explanation. So when I say why God, it's not, I'm not satisfied with, well, there's free will and there's evil and this and this and this. I want to know why it's happening in my life. Short of an explanation, we want to see all the good that will come out of the situation. It's almost as if we're letting God know we're willing to endure it if we know some good is going to be done. So God, maybe you can't explain this to me, but I want to know what good is going to come out of it. What new earthly foundation is going to be established to help other people going through this same problem or How many people are going to get saved through this situation? Something like that. And I think this is very common. I I, I just see this all the time in my life and in people's lives that are suffering tragedies. It's like, you know, I want it explained, and if it can't be explained, I want to know what good is going to come out of it. Well, of course, all things do work together for the good. God redeems everything. It's just that he might not do it in our lifetime or in a way that we can see for many, many years if we ever see it. Because God, and I say this reverently, owes us no explanation for these things. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament, you're all familiar with it. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, ends up in Potiphar's house, falsely accused, ends up in prison, interprets some dreams, ends up second in command to Pharaoh for interpreting his dreams. As the prime minister of Egypt, his brothers come to him seeking food during the famine. 
He saves the nation of Israel. At the end, he says, God, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Fantastic story, right? I mean, one of the greatest stories ever. But I think we make an error in our analysis of that story if we think that God has to explain everything to us the way he explains it to us about Joseph. I think God explains it, shows us all the connections so that we know how he is able to work behind the scenes in the most fantastic ways that could never be imagined. So that at the end of it, you would say, (laughs) the world meant it for evil, Satan meant it for evil, you meant it for evil, but God redeemed it. But sometimes we think that God owes us a point-by-point explanation of exactly how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it, and what great good is going to come out of it. And I don't see that that is necessary. For example, another example, early first century church, James, arrested, beheaded. The authorities say, hey, that's cool. Let's arrest Peter and behead him. Peter's in jail. He's guarded by 16 correctional officers, highly trained guys, Krav Maga guys. An angel appears in the prison, kicks him, says, hey, get up, we're escaping. Chains fall off, he walks right by the guards out into freedom. Why did James get beheaded and Peter get set free? We don't really care because we're not in that story, we just think it's a cool story, but we're never told. We're never told why James was beheaded and Peter was not. Uh, And see, God doesn't owe us an explanation because through Joseph we know that people mean things for evil. God redeems them for good. We need to rest in that. We may know it in this lifetime. We may not. God's not cold or distant in our suffering. Quite the opposite. He's always with us, never leaving us or forsaking us. When I'm suffering, I have a Savior who has suffered as well and more than I ever will or could. And he did it for me so I could draw from his strength and rest and revel in his love, look forward to his presence forever and ever in a place that'll be free of sin and death and pain and even tears. Jesus reminds us in his question that he is this unique God-man who came into a war-torn world to defeat the devil, conquer death by his own death, and redeem lost mankind along with the ruined, forfeited creation. He has answers to our questions, but more importantly, he is the answer when we are questioning. It's our relationship with him, our intimacy with him, our suffering together with him that sustains us. Since he is the God-man, since he proved his love for me by dying on the cross while I was still a sinner, his enemy, since my sins are forgiven and cannot be held against me, since my name is written in his book of life, since he is building my mansion in heaven and has promised to return to bring me safely there, since he has promised to complete the work he has started in me and present me faultless to God the Father, since he has given me the Holy Spirit as a token of our engagement, since he is my heavenly bridegroom, what questions do I really need to ask? Can I not simply rest in that kind of amazing love? I mean... That's just a few things I spun off the top of my head. You can think of a dozen more. And then in that background, do I really need to say, now, Lord, why do I have this? Or why is this particular suffering happening? Do I really need to know when I have so much to stand on? 
Can't I just believe that all things will work together for the good the way God says they were? Can I see that he loves me as much as he loved Joseph? And that whatever he's going to do for Joseph, he's going to do for me. Do I really need to know right now? Do I need to know in this lifetime what the Lord is doing? No. Now, just something I'll throw out there for your consideration. Some things are beyond our comprehension. For God to explain them, it would be like a four-year-old attending a lecture on quantum physics. Only the four-year-old would probably better comprehend quantum physics at the end of that lecture than we can the things that happen to us and around us. I'm not trying to be mystical, but life is complex. Do you understand how complex life is? And, And, you know, all the connections of life. Uh, philosophers talk about the butterfly effect. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? If a butterfly, you know, flies from this flower to that flower, you know, a hundred years ago, how does it ripple through time? And if it chose a different flower, I mean, and it's a way of talking about how complicated life really is. Would you rather have the answers to your questions or have the answer, Jesus, as your constant companion? I think you know the answer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for uh, just your willingness to answer these, these loaded questions that these men asked you in order to trip you up, to try and catch you, Lord. And not only did you answer them, uh, Lord, you put the questions to bed, as it were, and you taught us things through them. Separate from all that we learned today about the text, Lord, we want to know that you are uh, the working all things together for our good. We want to understand that you that began a good work in us will complete it, that you will present us faultless before your throne of grace, before the Father in heaven. We thank you for all of that.